we're going to stick with the low tech solution. And I'll tell you why. There is absolutely no tech out there that is ever going to beat an educated, caring snowmaker who's going gun to gun, checking what's going on with the snow. You can have a super cold night. Things are going great. And you've got one gun that's got a clog and a nozzle. And while things look good, this one gun in the line is producing water. And that can screw things up bad. When people ski here, what they're feeling underneath their skis is a lot of care and a lot of love from the snow crew. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester hitting one of my favorite ski spots anywhere today. Real quick though, if you haven't done this already, pop over to stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. If you found this podcast through some other platform, that's great, welcome, glad to have you. But you would have gotten it the second it was live if you were an email subscriber. That email also includes an enormous amount of additional context that complements the audio, including trail maps, photos, and a full breakdown of the ski area. And if you're a Michigan skier, I will have another Michigan pod hitting those inboxes next week. You can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Okay, let me talk about my OG sponsor, Mountain Gazette. What is Mountain Gazette? Well, it's a skiing magazine, but it is also a climbing, backpacking, trekking, fishing, and running magazine. And it goes on, ranging widely in, over, and through the mountains and digging deeply into subjects of all kinds. A given issue can cover everything from mountain play to mountain people, mountain politics, culture, trends, travel, and the environment. There are also some subjects in Mountain Gazette's pages that defy categorization. There are more than a few surprises, news reviews, and many unusual side trips into the most remote corners of the world's highest places. All of them presented with a humor, freshness, vitality, and originality that have both won and lost the magazine friends, but rarely left readers feeling lukewarm about them. But don't take our word for it. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. I've got one more partner to tell you about, and it's a good one. Snowbound Expo is coming. After two years dormant, the former Boston Ski Show has been purchased by Raccoon Events and renamed Snowbound Expo. The show will offer a huge speaker lineup that includes Cody Miller, Conrad Anker, Dan Egan, Basu Sujitra, Danny Reyes Acosta, Lindy Fixmer, and more. You will also find sales on the latest gear, apparel, and resort passes, and you can try a dry ski slope and kick back with friends at the Opera Ski Mountain Bar. The show is November 18th to 20th at Boston Heinz Convention Center. Tickets are normally $15 per day, but Snowbound Expo is offering Storm listeners free tickets for the entire weekend. To claim your tickets, visit snowboundexpo.com and use code STORM at the checkout. I will be there and I hope to meet you in person. Episode 100, Ben Dornboss, General Manager of Nubs Knob, Michigan. Yes, here we are on episode 100 and 12. Don't forget the storm delivered 12 COVID-19 and skiing pods. So this is actually the 112th episode of the storm. 
little record scratch there. But if this were the real 100, I could think of no better ski area to mark that milestone than Nubs Knob, Michigan. First, best ski area name in America. Second, this is a place that is very special to me and very special to a lot of skiers in Michigan. I'm not really sure exactly how to explain this to people who haven't skied Nubs, but this place is unique and it's beloved. The explanation is not in the numbers. 427 vertical feet is 427 vertical feet. But I'm telling you, no one cares. This place is built on atmosphere and it's built on community and it's built on delivering a damn good ski experience. It's been this way forever. Anytime I'm back in Michigan and want to make some turns, Nubs is everyone's first choice. And every time I go back, the place is a little different. A new glade here, a new lift there. The grooming is always spectacular and the place skis big with far more variety than you'd ever think a little bump like this would have. If you still don't get it, that's fine. Just listen to Ben, then grab your Indy Pass and schedule a stop in Northern Michigan. Let's go. My guest today has been the general manager of Nubs Knob, Michigan since 2017. Nubs Knob has 10 lifts serving 53 trails across 248 acres on a 427 foot vertical drop. Founded in 1957, Nubs Knob remains family owned. The ski area is frequently named as one of the best in the Midwest for grooming, terrain parks, and overall experience by outlets such as Ski, Outside, and the Detroit News. He has been at Nubs Knob since 2008, working pretty much every job on the mountain, including in the rental center, the tech center, snowmaking, and lift crew operations. Ben Dornboss is my guest. Ben, welcome to the storm. So good to finally connect. How is your day going so far? So far, so good, Stuart. Thanks for having me. So before we get into it here, we're seeing snow guns firing up in Colorado and Vermont and believe it or not, North Carolina. How long until we see those guns blazing in Nubs Knob? Well, we had uh, the majority of our snow guns on last week, but that was just oh, wow. doing a test. Um, so our snow crew is um, pretty much together right now. The guys are getting ready. And so what we do this time of year is we turn on those guns, we check for busted nozzles. We do oil changes and all of that. But in terms of actually producing snow, um, we try for, um, you know, typically around, it's going to be right after Thanksgiving um, for the opening, if we're lucky and guns go on probably early November. The, the earliest opening date we've ever had in our history, believe it or not, is November 9th. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the wow. latest opening I, we've ever had has been kind of mid-December. So, um, and in, in my five years here, the first year I was in uh, the GM position, we opened November 16th. And then last year, I believe we opened, um, you know, sometime around December 5th. So it's, there's quite a spread um, up here about when we could open. Mid-November is good, and, and I'll notice it's bold of you to open on the same day as the opening of deer hunting season. I know that's basically a holiday in the state. Yeah, it is. <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> so in, in, it, that's an impressive date. In recent years, we've seen your downstate neighbors, Wisconsin Resorts, which is a funny name because they own four ski areas in Michigan, but they own Alpine Valley, Mount Holly, Bittersweet, and Pine Knob, and we've seen them crack open 
Mount Holly and Pine Knob really early, first 10 days in November. How do you consider trying to compete with them? I was hassling Ed Grice at Boyne Mountain about this last year, saying, how can you let those guys down in Metro Detroit beat you? Is this something you've thought about? Well, you know, it's something we all think about in Michigan. Um, you know, bottom line, the ski industry in uh, the lower peninsula of Michigan doesn't exist without snowmaking. And all of us are doing what we can do to open up as much terrain as, as fast as we can. And, um, you know, we've been working on that um, since Nubs Knob opened, uh, building up that infrastructure. And, you know, you got some of these smaller um, downstate areas and I feel for those guys because, yeah, well, they might open before we do once in a while. Um, they they really need to be able to go from green, yeah, green slopes to white slopes in a 24 to 48 hour period. Um, and the, the reason is because they'll go through freeze and thaw cycles in the middle of the winter now, um, which is something we seldom have here. We might have, you know, in January and February, a day or two that peak above freezing. But for us, generally speaking, once it gets cold, it stays cold up here in northern Michigan. Um, so it, it is kind of a different game down there. And those guys have got to have that infrastructure even more so than we do. As you look at what you open with, Ben, how much of a factor is your sort of minimum viable footprint? Because there's some places out here in the east, I'm sure you're where Killington opens with that one trail. You take the gondola up, you walk over, you you take a trip uh, quad chair up and down 500 feet. Do you play that game or, or do you say, OK, we're not going to open until we have the front six trails open? Is there a minimum footprint? Uh, it's a great question. Um, generally speaking, the quote we go with here is if you can open, you should open, uh, meaning if we have terrain any terrain we and it's early in the season and we can do it we're we're going to try to do it you know that's what we're here for um however uh the way we make snow when we turn on the guns we're pretty much making snow on our entire front aspect um which means that generally speaking if we have one trail we've probably got at least five trails um just because that's the way we're making the snow all right. I, I want to get really into nub snowmaking later on because your system is just incredible. But let's back up here and reset. You've been at Nubs for a long time, since 2008. Was Nubs Knob your first job in skiing? Yeah, it was. Um, I So I have a degree from Northern Michigan University in outdoor recreation and leadership. And um, my wife is from the Petoskey area. I grew up downstate Michigan, um, grew up in a family that liked to ski. And um, anyways, we came to Petoskey, Michigan for my wife's job in 2008. We were recently married. And the only thing I knew about this area was uh, Nubs Knob because I'd come here as a kid and um, went to the general manager's office and asked for a job. Um, this was in November. And um, I, I did get hired on to work in the rental department. So Worked in the rental department, making $8.25 an hour, <laughs> uh, starting out. And it was supposed to be just a wintertime job to get me to uh, a summer gig, but it, it eventually has uh, led me to where I'm at right now. So you you went to college at Northern. There's a really nice ski area up there in the UP in the Upper Peninsula called Marquette Mountain. Did you ski much at Marquette in college? Yeah, I did. Um, I skied there, but I was 
you know, the definition of a starving college student and you know, <laughs> donating plasma to pay the rent and all of that. So I, I skied as much as I could afford, but um, unfortunately, it wasn't as much as I would have liked. What do you think about the new owners up at Marquette Mountain? They actually joined the Indy Pass the same day you did back in June, and we'll talk about the Indy Pass a lot more later. But what do you think about the new owners and the trajectory of Marquette Mountain? You know, I've um, I've met him a few times and um, his new GM, and she seems great. Um, you know, just in a couple of quick conversations, the sense I get from them is that they're uh, focused on the right things, which, you know, in the state of Michigan, it's it's snowmaking, grooming, and, uh, you know, chairlift infrastructure. That, that's what where they need, their focus needs to be. And um, I, I think that they're going to do great. So you start at Nubs Knob, making eight twenty five an hour in the rental center. You've stuck around. Take us through your progression at Nubs Knob from that first job up to the general manager seat you're sitting in today. You know, there's, and I, and I hope our customers can attest to this as well, Stuart. But there's something pretty cool about this place. Um, the the community that exists here amongst the employees it's really awesome. Most folks that um, work here seasonally, come back. Uh, we have a 75 to 80% retention rate. And, uh, you know, the, the, the managers of our different departments, most of those folks have been here for 15 to some up to 40 years. Oh, wow. Um, so there's a ton of longevity and there's just a really cool vibe about working here. There's a buzz about the ski hill. Um, the family that owns Nubs Knob treats all of us extraordinarily well. Uh, so it, it was kind of a no-brainer to keep coming back here um, in the in the winter time, and uh, the general manager at that time, Jim Bartlett, um, did a great job identifying um, in me and others, you know, possible potential and where uh, they'd be a good fit. And I got moved from the rental center to the tune center to snowmaking on the midnight shift, um, and you know, really got to know uh, the the folks that make this place run. Um, and I just fell in love with it. So you're making snow, working all over the resort. When did you move into management? How did that opportunity come up? Uh, wrong place at the wrong time, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, one of those situations where, um, you, you know, there's there was just a, there's a, a yes, we have about 250 employees here, but there's a core uh, a group that really makes the, the place run on a year to year basis. And, um, I think that in order to do, you know, this job or any of those jobs, whether it be our area manager or our office manager or, uh, food and beverage manager, you, you really need to have the passion for the industry, but you also have to have a passion for the place and just be willing to, um, keep going, you know, to run a ski area in the Midwest. Uh, a lot of us are putting in, you know, massive amount of hours um, to, to do that. And I think that I had the right mix of um, passion for the job and and was willing to learn and, and also really willing to work with the folks that are here. And really, I, I consider myself extremely lucky to work with um, the entire crew that's here because they are an established bunch that have been working together for years and years and years. So uh, I don't know that that's a great answer other than I think I just kept showing up to work. <laughs> so you take the assistant general manager position, if I'm remembering this correctly. When you took that job, Ben, did you have a conversation with Jim where he said, you know, I'm, I'm 
I've been here for 30 years and we'll talk about Jim in a minute. You know, I'm, I'm kind of getting ready to retire. I, I, you know, I need someone to succeed me. Did you have that conversation when you took that assistant general manager job? Or is that something that evolved organically as you settled into that role? You know, for for JB and I, uh, it, it did kind of go like that when, um, you know, when he promoted me to the uh, first, it was assistant area manager. He said, hey, there's a possibility out here. You know, I'm going to be retiring in the next at that point is probably six or seven years. And he said, if if you're interested in the job, there's an opportunity for someone and it could be you. Um, and there was a few other folks, you know, before me that were interested in that job as well. Um, but, you know, I think, like I said, a lot of it had to do with just, um, you know, coming into work and, uh, doing the best you could every day and, uh, working with the guys that were here. And, uh, yeah, that, that it, it did kind of evolve organically. Um, and my coming to nubs in 2008, it was good time, uh, for JB where he was at, at that time and thinking about, um, you know, his retirement path and you know, his, his goal was to leave nubs in a wonderful position when he retired, um, which he did. And he had done that a long time ago by hiring, you know, one of the best area managers that I've could possibly imagine Marty Moore and one of our, uh, top grooming guy and, uh, Scott Guppy Kuntz and, um, the lodge manager, Ralph Horn, he had just together this all-star team and, um, you know, to have, for me, I feel bad for anybody who would be jumping into a position like mine and not have those years of experience, one, to work under someone like uh, Jim Bartlett, and two, to to not have the crew um, to, to back you up that's been here for so long. So let's talk about Jim for a minute. He led Nubs Knob for 30 years, from 1987 to 2017, and he's an absolute legend, both in Michigan skiing and really nationally. Talk about Jim's influence on you personally, Ben, what you learned about him, what you learned from him about leadership, guest service, creating a quality product, managing employees. Well, JB had an unmistakable impact on me and on Nubs Knob. You know, his focus on snowmaking uh, was paramount. Uh, his focus on uh, service was was huge. Um, and I think, you know, the biggest thing you can say about him is look at the legacy, which is to say the folks that worked for him starting in 1987 when he was thrown into the job because the GM at, that he took over for had a had a heart attack. And all of a sudden um, mm. he went from being uh, the area manager to the GM in a day. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the crew that he had with him at that time, most of those folks are still here. Um, wow. So I, I think that that speaks really to his legacy. Um, and the, the other cool thing about, you know, JB and his impact on this place is when you look through the Nubs Nub history, um, that, you know, the Nubs snow gun that was developed here, there was a handful of snow guns when he started in 87. And by the time he retired, we were over 300 snow guns, you know, wow. in, in his tenure here, he just went on a snowmaking building sprint. He worked with uh, the owner, uh, Walter Fisher, and um, Walter gave him the thumbs up to do what he saw best for the place, which was at that time, we need to build snow guns and, um, and increase our footprint with uh, the expansion of Pintail Peak. And uh, JB had what I've got to say is the best crew 
a person could possibly imagine. Um, and, but his, yeah, the impact is lasting and, you know, I got to see all of that. And, uh, JB certainly instilled in me, uh, what it, what it meant to, um, to work hard for a place and not just for a place, but more importantly for the people that are here. So in some ways it's the best situation ever, right? You have this guy who has been there for 30 years, really stable operation, really built up. On the other hand, how are you the next Yankee after Babe Ruth, right? It's, it's a lot to follow. So when you, when you took the general manager job, first of all, when did you realize that you were indeed going to be the next general manager of Nubs Knob? And, and, and more importantly, Ben, how did you approach this? Because it's, it's one thing to take over a ski area. Like I, I interviewed Spencer and Sarah Montgomery, who bought West Mountain, New York, about a decade ago. And the place was a dump and it was pretty obvious what needed to be done. When you take over an operation that is running, it's this well-oiled machine. Where do you start? Do you, besides just keeping doing what you're doing, it, it, it's you have to keep the place evolving. You have to keep it moving. So what was your approach to management so that you maintain that excellence while continuing to move nubs forward? Well, I had a pretty simple mantra my first two years here, which was, don't screw it up. <laughs> so so that, that, that's, you know, where I started from. And uh, the, the folks that were here, um, we, we've got a great relationship and they were not going to let uh, us fail, you know, once uh, JB had retired. Um, but that was really, for me, it, and I say that jokingly, but it really was true, was we've got this wonderful place, this incredible ski area, this great vibe, great culture, just don't screw it up. Um, and, and, you know, that would keep me up at night a lot, of course, is just making sure that I was um, staying on par with where we've been at, at Nubs. But the next thing that happened was um, COVID. And that, that really changed things here as it did everywhere. And then for me, I, I say that first COVID year was like five years of experience. Um, so I feel like at that point, it did let you know, myself and the, the team that is here work together to do some stuff that, you know, we had thought about and talked about for years. Um, and, but in terms of my own leadership and management um, of the place, I think that that was a whole nother thing. I'm curious about one element of this here, Ben. And I ask this because there's a lot of folks in the ski industry that listen to this podcast. You know, you said that you came in, you have this great crew that Jim Bartlett had built and some of them have been there for decades and decades. You're a pretty young guy. I don't know how, exactly how old, but you know, clearly younger than a lot of these other managers at the area. How do you work your way up to this top position without making it awkward, staying humble, respecting the, the, the job that everyone else done before you, but you know, it's, it's the job, you earned the job. So how do you manage that whole dynamic when, when you are now the boss of these people that you learned a lot from? Well, that's a great question. That's an ongoing, you know, thing that, that I've got to work on. But I, I think the real thing is just time in the saddle. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you want to uh, run a ski area well or any business well, you just, you got to spend time there and you got to spend time with the people. And a lot of it for me had to do with, like you say, trying to stay humble and just listen. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I right, right away recognized, um, we don't have many problems here. They've been dealt with before. Um, JB did a great job dealing with those problems. The managers of the different departments here have dealt with a lot of issues. So 
you know, I think a lot of it is um, just listening to the folks that you've got using the resources you've got and just trying to identify problems. And when you have a problem, you, you know, you talk to the folks that can help solve that um, and come up with solutions together. But th that's the real thing is bringing that team together um, and, and having those conversations of like, hey, we've got an issue today, let's solve it together. And I think taking that sort of approach rather than, um, you know, for me, a top-down authoritative style just was not going to work with this crew that's been here so long. It would have not fit and it wasn't needed. So is, is Jim Bartlett still available to you? Can you give him a call and, uh, and ask for advice? Say, hey, here, here's what's going on. I could use your perspective. And, and how often do you make that call? Yeah, he, he absolutely is um, around and, and can we can talk, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, he skis here all the time. But, you know, more importantly, he had done the work prior to his retirement of downloading that information uh, into my into my brain and into uh, the, the, the folks that have been here for so long. So, um, you know, any great leader, it's like you already know what they're going to say. Right. Um, there's not a question here. Like, uh, we, yeah, I know what your perspective is because we've talked about it ad infinitum many, many times. So it's a beautiful thing. So I think he left us in a great position where, well, yes, that it's awesome to have that resource. Um, he also left it. So he had a, a very clear philosophy um, of, of leadership and management of this place that I, I kind of know what he would be doing. So in hindsight here, Ben, your story is really compelling. Start eight bucks an hour in the rental shop, work your way up to general manager. Seems like you have a really long runway ahead and can probably be there as long as you want to. Was there a moment looking back, because none of this is inevitable, right? Was there a moment when you said, this is my place, this is where I want to make my career, this is where I want to spend my professional life? Absolutely. Yeah. I remember JB, sometime when I had that assistant area manager, as I said, he presented that it was a possibility that I could um, stay on and work toward the general manager position. And my wife and I at that time, she, she had a good career going too. But um, as other folks in the ski industry can attest, when you've got young kids and uh, you know somebody else in the family working, you kind of that was going to be really difficult. And so uh, my wife Liz and I sat down and had a long conversation, um, and we decided that this was the path we wanted to pursue: was uh, me working at the ski area, which for our family meant. Um, you know, throwing all of our eggs in this basket and me working towards doing this. And she knew that that, that would mean that she would be staying home, uh, you know, with the kids and, and putting her career on, on the, um, on the back burner. But, you know, that was in retrospect, that was the right call. So let's zoom out further here. Nubs Knob founded in 1957, 65 years ago. Tell us about the founders of Nubs Knob and how the scary got its name. Okay, so this is a pretty cool story. So um, the founders of Nubs Knob um, were a pretty eccentric couple. They loved to ski. Uh, they loved to sail. Um, they, were, they were oftentimes in the Chicago to Mackinac sailboat race. Um, they lived north of Harbor Springs in a, in a very low population area, and I believe they even had a rope tow kind of in their backyard. Um, but they were looking for better skiing, and this is in the uh, er, you know, early to mid-50s. And then Anyways, they found Nubs Knob in a 19, you know, the property, which is right across the street from, at that time, what was, was called the uh, Harbor Highlands. 
and which is now the Highlands. Um, and they found this piece of property, decided to develop it. They worked with some of their friends and they had, uh, you know, built a few ski runs here. And we opened in 1957, as you said. Um, and the guy, his name was Norman uh, Sarns, nicknamed Nubby. And his wife was Dory Sarns. And, um, you know, pretty fitting name for the place, Nuts uh, Knob. And uh, yeah, so that, that was how Nubs got its start. But, you know, it's, it's hilarious because I say the name all the time and, you know, I hear it all the time. But when I go to a ski industry, you know, meeting or something out West or whatever, and you sit, tell somebody, oh, I'm from Nubs Knob, they're like, wait, you're from where? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think about it anymore, but it's like, yeah, okay, that does sound weird, doesn't it? Nubs Knob, but um, yeah, I, it, it's a wonderful name. And when the Fisher family bought the place in 1977, um, they thought long and hard about changing the name and I'm glad that they did. It's still got this kind of quirkiness to it. It's a name you don't forget. I think personally that it's one of the best names in skiing. And I'm familiar with every ski area on the continent. And, and that's a good one. It really stands out. Does the Fisher family still own Nubs Knob today? They do. So Walter um, purchased the place in 1977 from Dory. And if you don't know anything about Dory, she she was a super independent lady. She ended up running the ski area um, solo, uh, we were featured in Warren Miller, I think 1977, I think the last year she owned it. And, um, you know, there's a film strip of her coming down smoky with, uh, one of her dogs chasing her. She always had dogs in the lodge. Um, she had a horse barn near the ski, the ski area. So she totally eccentric, um, awesome person. And she was very picky about who she would sell to. Um, but Walter was the right person and he, uh, he, he was going to continue on with the philosophy that she wanted to see of being a really friend, family friendly ski area. And, uh, yeah, he bought the place in 77 and the Fisher family continues to, um, own and operate the place today. He, uh, Walter passed in 2016 and his daughter Elise, um, is now, um, the person who's really, uh, taking the reins from Walter. So do you get the sense that Elise is committed as a long-term owner of Nubs Knob and they want to keep that thing family owned? Absolutely. That is uh, essential to her and her family. Um, and Elise now has grandchildren. Um, mm-hmm. They raised them, uh, you know, the kids and the grandkids on the slopes here. Uh, Elise's son, Stuart, um, was actually a Michigan state champion um, high school ski racer. Uh, so yeah, they are totally committed. So your motto, Nubs Nubs motto is quote, where skiers go and quote, talk about how that reflects ownership's philosophy of what Nubs Nubs should be and how they operate it. Well, it's a really simple motto and it, I love it because, you know, where skiers go kind of says it all. Um, you know, if you're looking for a dinner on a tablecloth and a massage after the ski day, uh, Nubs is probably not the place for you, but if you're looking for um, great ski experience, awesome groomed snow, friendly lift operators, and a beer and a burger in the pub, this is the place. So where skiers go is this really simple way to say that's all we care about at Nubs Knob. If you look at Nubs Knob's trail maps over the year, it's pretty remarkable how consistently the ski area upgrades. It seems like every year there's a new lift or a new trail or a new glade or something 
on the mountain that changes and evolves the ski experience. And there's other ski areas in Michigan that also continue to evolve in that way. Cabaret, I think, is probably the most aggressive in continuing to build up new peaks and reopen old terrain and move lifts around. Crystal Mountain also does a good job. Obviously, Boyne has a funnel of cash to work with. Just talk about that commitment at Nubs Knob to just continuously giving skiers a little bit more so that that experience continues to evolve. Well, this, this is the ideal ski area to work at, um, and it's a great place to ski. And the reason is at the end of every ski season, the ownership gets together uh, with myself. And the essential question is, what can we do to make this place better for skiing? Um, their philosophy is they want to run the Midwest best day ski area. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't care about hot tubs or overnight lodging. You know, all of that stuff just isn't even on our radar. It's just how can we make the skiing better? Um, so when you start with that question, you know, the answers you get are uh, usually <laughs> something to do with snowmaking, but it could be uh, glades, it could be uh, chairlifts, all of that stuff. But it's a really simple philosophy of management and ownership that has led us to where we're at now. And you announced a big one just last week. And this was great timing because we scheduled this podcast months ago. But last week, you announced an upgrade for your workhorse Green Lift. That's the second longest lift on the mountain. Tell us about this project, Ben. Lay it out for us. What are we getting? What is your timeline here? And why was it time to upgrade Green? A great question. So we're getting a SkyTrack, which is a fixed grip quad. Uh, It's replacing a riblet, which is first installed in 1978, Um, our green lift. Like you say, it's our workhorse lift. And it was time to replace the lift um, because at some point it is time. Uh, And right now with these riblets, we actually, you know, riblets no longer around. There is a guy uh, in Washington that we can call for some parts, but that's becoming increasingly difficult to find. Um, so when we take down this fixed grip quad riblet, it gives us a parts bin to service the other riblets we have mm. here. So you decided to go fixed grip. Uh, I think some folks were hoping for a high speed quad. You did a really nice job laying this out in a video that accompanied this upgrade, which I, I will include in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But lay this out for the listeners here. Did you consider a high-speed lift to replace green? And ultimately, why did you decide that fixed grip was the way to go? Well, that's a great question. And it's one that we asked ourselves. You know, we we said, okay, it's time to do some chairlift replacement here, just given the age of the uh, infrastructure and the uh, lack of availability of parts. What do we want to do? And we actually worked with the SE group, as you probably know, these guys are some of the best ski area planners. Yeah. Um, in the country, they just mm-hmm. do an awesome job. And um, we did a whole study about what would happen if we were to replace the green lift and maybe some others with high speed lifts. And generally speaking, you know, what they told us is they generally recommend removing a couple of fixed grip lifts in favor of a high speed lift. But when they looked at Nub's Knob, one, because of the length of our chair lifts, and two, um, because of the layout of the place, they just really thought that that would actually take away from the ski experience. And essentially what they found is, we think that if we were to replace the green lift with a high-speed lift, that we would concentrate skiers on the runs that that one high-speed serves, and we would stop spreading skiers out across 
the front side, our south side, and Pintail Peak. And you know, that could really um, make the ski experience worse rather than better. And ironically, on a busy day, instead of getting more runs, you could be getting less runs. So across the street at the Highlands, which is owned by Boyne Resorts, they kind of solved that lift choice problem by wiping out three triples, which is what they just announced. They're going to wipe out three old riblet triples and replace it with one high-speed D-line six-pack. On your front side, you have the red lift quad, the green lift quad, and the yellow lift triple. Is that something that you thought about, maybe do a, a six-pack or maybe even an A-place share to just replace all three of those? Was that considered? Everything was considered. You know, we, we, we really wanted to open our minds and not just throw out any idea right off the bat, just saying it seems silly. Um, of course, we really like redundancy. Um, the other thing about nubs is, you, you, you know, you got to start with the, what problem do I have right now? What problem does a ski area have? And when we have our busy days over the holidays and Saturdays, we don't have a problem on the hill. You know, we've only got a five minute lift line uh, at most, typically. Uh, so and what I see with skier distribution when I get out there and ski um, is we've got about equal lift lines on the front side, the south side, and Pintail Peak. So we didn't want to solve a problem we didn't have. Uh, so that's kind of where we started from. And then you say, okay, well, what if we did that? What if we uh, put in a high-speed six-pack and we got rid of some of these fixed grips? And what we think is going to happen, again, is we're going to just send that skier concentration to one area, um, create a, a line at the chairlift, and, um, and then you get rid of some of your redundancy too, which uh, puts you really in a bad position if something were to happen in that lift. So as you look around the state, there's not a ton of high-speed lifts in Michigan, but Crystal has one. The Highlands is about to put in their second. Boyne Mountain is putting in their second. Mount Holly and Bittersweet <laughs> strangely have them, even though their, their vertical drop is shorter than Nubs. There's not a ton of them in the state, but there are enough that Michigan skiers are familiar with them, most likely, and probably develop an affinity for them. Were you feeling any pressure from your customers or from skiers locally to upgrade to a high-speed lift at some point? Yes, there there is some pressure. Of course, there's always going to be the folks that would like to see it. And I'll be super honest, you know, if it's going to be uh, Tuesday and nobody's here, um, and there's a high speed lift running. Yeah. You're going to get more runs in. Um, but you know, we estimate that we're going to take a five minute lift ride down to a, uh, three minute lift ride. So yeah, it gets you more, but it's not, you know, hugely significant. Um, so yes, there was some pressure, but you might be surprised that there was some pressure in the opposite direction too. Uh, which is to say, people are saying, please don't change the nature and the character of this place. You know, we like the fixed grips. We like that five minute slower ride. And um, we don't need to be cruising uphill uh, at, at twice the speed. Um, there, Nubs Knob is the kind of place where if you've got a season pass here, there's a good chance that your parents had a season pass here. Maybe their grandparents did uh, or your grandparents. So it, there's a lot of pressure to keep things here kind of the same, too, um, and not screw up a good thing, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, and I, I really do, Stuart, think that putting in that high speed could very well screw up a good thing here. All right, quick break, quick note from Open Snow, and then back to it. All right, I want to talk to you about a service that I use every single day in the wintertime. 
open snow. I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. And what that means is I have a lot of options. So when I plan my ski days, I want to know what's firing. Is it the Lake Erie Snowbelt, plastering Western New York? Do I need to head up to the Tug Hill Plateau? Are the Catskills hot? Or the resorts along the Green Mountain Spine in Vermont? Or the Whites, or the Presidentials? Or is a Southern Storm plastering Pennsylvania and Virginia? It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly, and that's why I use open snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, hourly forecasts, mountain cams, and resort-by-resort resort snow forecasts. Yes, they are now a partner, but I have used Open Snow for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. All right, back to Ben. So what has the reaction been like so far? You were pretty clear about this in the video that in your, your quote was, high speed lifts don't make sense at Nubs Knob. And I think that was a pretty clear signal. Not only is green not going to be a high-speed lift, but we're not going to have high-speed lifts, period. So when it is time to upgrade orange, which I imagine is within the next decade or so, that is probably going to be a fixed grip, too, is the message I was getting. What's the reaction been like to that? And, and am I interpreting that correctly? You are interpreting that correctly. <laughs> yes. And Stuart, you're very wise to see that the green the green lift is our workhorse lift, but that orange lift is um, you know maybe another... 15, 20% longer than the green lift. So if we were going to put one somewhere that, that would be another spot to consider. But, uh, again, if you put a high speed lift on one area, my thinking is you really need to do it, um, on all three aspects. So we would need to do it front side, south side, and, um, pintail peak. And again, for us, that doesn't make sense. Um, just from a cost perspective, uh, in addition to the other stuff that we've already talked about. <laughs> So we're getting a fixed grip to replace green. You said in the video that there would be, quote, some significant upgrades, end quote. What are those upgrades, Ben? Well, if you've ever driven a Ford F-150 from 1978 and then you got in one from 2022, you would definitely know that there's there's a difference, right? And right. I think that it's similar with chairlifts. Um, you know, ergonomically, the seats are better. You know, that's going to be the first thing folks are going to notice. And then, of course, there'll be... Um, the safety bar on this lift, the restraint bar. Um, but the electronics, the uh, drive of the lift is much smoother. So the ramp up and the ramp down on speed is, is going to be better, um, more efficient. Um, and it's just going to be quieter and tighter feeling. Um, so I think, you know, folks will right away notice there's going to be an increased comfort level with this chairlift. Is the lift going to be carpet loaded? No. Did you consider that? Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, the chairlift manufacturers, um, even the SE group, a lot of folks say, hey, when you're going to put in a new fixed grip, you really ought to consider the carpet load. And I know why. It's because, you know, theoretically, you can load that chair faster with a carpet, you know, the carpet moving at a certain speed and you can get on faster. Um, I've ridden carpet uh, loading fixed grips 
And I think when they're working great, they work great. But what often happens is you've got mom and dad riding with kids and, um, you know, their skis catch that carpet sooner than the kids skis. And so people don't get lined up and, um, that can cause loading problems if people aren't fully loaded before the end of the carpet. Um, and then when something goes wrong, it seems to me like it tends to go wrong, quite wrong and getting it started out and the time that the lift is going to be stopped, uh, is more significant. Um, it's also one more thing to break. You know, one of the things we love about, um, the fixed grip lifts and the sky track lift that we will be getting is the simplicity of the whole thing. Um, but I really, you know, nubs knob has got awesome chairlift operators. These guys take the job seriously. Uh, a lot of them have been with us for 10 plus years. Um, and I think that, you know, the best you can do on a fixed grip personally is having a super well-trained lift operator that's doing great ramp maintenance and talking to the skiers. Um, and that's one of the things you'll find here is we've got a super engaged lift crew that's going to look you in the eye. Hey guys, come on up to the red board. Let's stop right there. Let's get those boots lined up. And then they're maintaining that ramp. And if you've got somebody that's doing that um, consistently, you're going to get, I think, more success than you will with a, a carpet. Let's talk a little bit more about the expense piece of this, Ben. What can you tell us about how much this lift is going to cost and how that compares to how much a high speed lift, either a four or a six would have cost and the variability in the different maintenance, such as having to change out the, the detachable grips and that kind of thing, you know, for the foreseeable future. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I know maybe that's a bit of a secret, but you know, it, is this going to be a couple million dollar project? That's what a, a putting a new fixed grip in is going to mean. It's going to be a couple million dollar project um, where a high speed would be, you know, three, four times that. Wow. Uh, and that's, that's just the initial cost. That's really mm -hmm. not even the worst of it uh, for us when we were looking at the expense of it. The, the, the worst of it is actually the ongoing maintenance. Um, the high speed requires a whole lot more maintenance. Um, you know, and they say probably expect five, six, seven times the maintenance cost per year. Um, oh my gosh. Chairlift. And not only that, but because of the, um, the electronics uh, and the, the higher sophistication with these lifts, uh, there's a very good chance that you're also going to be needing to bring on uh, new talent into your workforce. And for us, it probably meant even bringing on a, a new lift mechanic, even though we've got some of the greatest lift mechanics, uh, you know, in the Midwest here, uh, it, just adding that much more to their load would probably mean uh, hiring of another full-time mechanic. So for anyone familiar with your trail map or lift fleet or, or has probably picked up from this conversation, all of your lifts are color coded, red, green, yellow, brown, orange, black, gray. Will the new green lift be green? Yes. Yeah, the new, the new <laughs> lift will be green. Um, the, the chairs will probably remain galvanized as will the, uh, to the, the, um, the cross arms, but the towers themselves will be green. Yes, absolutely. And for those who are lift nerds, they know that Skytrack terminals tend to be blue or blue trimmed. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm having a, a kind of a hard time envisioning this, Ben, are, to, to, to see a green lift with a blue terminal. Are you working with Skytrack on that to maybe make some custom terminals here? Well, if you've ever looked at the Nubs Knob logo, 
you would notice that there's absolutely nothing wrong with putting the colors blue and green together. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the plan is, is typical uh, standard SkyTrack terminals? I think so. I, yes. Um, yeah. And the cool thing, there's a bunch of cool things about this project, but one of them is the what it takes to tension these things is not uh, quite as much as what it took to tension the old school lifts. Um, so the chairlift itself is actually going to have a smaller footprint on the hill, especially at the bottom. So right now our bottom terminal also acts as a tension terminal, um, but it won't anymore. It's just going to be an F-frame holding the, the uh, return wheel, basically. So that's going to open up maybe 40, 50 feet of additional ski space at the bottom of our hill, which is kind of desperately needed. Um, so people are going to really like what this thing does on the slopes. In addition to needing fewer towers, it's going to open up more skiable terrain. Does that mean that the the load terminal will be in a different place? And, and will this lift follow the same line as the existing green lift with the same top and bottom terminals? You know, we're going to make a few small adjustments um, and we're working on that right now. Um, but generally speaking, the lift's in a pretty dang good spot. Um, so I, I, there won't be any major adjustments. The big thing you'll notice is fewer towers on the hill. So what's the timeline here, Ben? When do you demo the current lift, dem demolish it, and, and when are you putting up the new one, and when can we ride it? Well, we're going to close on April 2 this year. We've got a um, drop-dead date, and the lift will come down on April 3. <laughs> Not quite like that, but it's going to be real close. We're going to, you know, getting one of these projects in to tear down um, the old green and put a new one up, um, that's a nervous time, right? I mean, this is our bread and butter. Um, and so we're going to want to get on this thing uh, as soon as we possibly can. So you do have two other riblet quads on the mountain. Are you going to sell the chairs or are you keeping those for parts? We'll do a little bit of both. Um, we're going to keep some of the chairs uh, to, you know, if we've got issues here, but we certainly don't need all 83 chairs. So I think, and we're going to hold back a number of the chairs for local charities. Um, when we took down our blue chairlift, uh, we gave a number of those chairs to charity. And I believe that they, uh, the, the largest one went for like $4,000, which is really cool. Um, but I think we'll also sell some off to the season pass holders. Uh, we're still coming up with a plan on how we're going to do that. But I mean, I've probably got a uh, hundred different calls and messages about, can I have a green chair? <laughs> All right, let's talk about blue. So the blue double ran parallel to green and red on a shorter line. You demolished that lift two years ago. Why did you demolish blue? Why did I demolish blue? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was my yeah, your fault, Ben. New, new to the job, and I was called the blue killer. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't know that uh, if my job would survive that because people absolutely love that that blue lift. It was one of the um, last flying bowl wheels left in the country, mm. um, but it was redundant and it wasn't needed. Uh, we ran the lift eight to 10 times a year. Um, and when we did, it really didn't give us a whole lot of capacity. Uh, parts for it were absolutely non-existent at that time. And where it ran on the hill, it came right through Valley, which in my opinion is our nicest uh, intermediate run. Uh, we recognize that by taking the lift down, we could uh, really make the skiing on Valley a whole lot better. We could also open up the top of um, of the knob, if you will, because nubs knob all comes to a point. We could create more skiable uh, space there, more open space. Uh, and, you know, just given the fact that 
the parts thing was a massive issue and we were needing parts in addition to the fact that my lead mechanic said he would not be coming back for another year if that lift was up one more season. So it was, it's just, uh, it was time. Was it the right decision? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, we certainly don't miss it from a capacity standpoint and the skiing on Valley. Um, again, that just beautiful run on the front uh, has gotten a lot better. There were some folks I talked to, they were kind of hoping that lift would slide over and replace that rope toe on JB Arena. It sounds like your mechanics were done dealing with that thing. Did you consider moving it elsewhere on the hill? No, we, we didn't consider that. I, I, I shouldn't say no. We Yeah, there was a, a little bit of thought, to, hey, it would be cool to put it over there on JB Arena. But, um, you know, we really like the rope toe over there. Um, it... Uh, that that is to, that's a uh, that's basically our high speed lift now is that rope toe. <laughs> you know it's running um, well over six hundred feet per minute. You know the kids can get up there, and I say kids because it's used for high school um, and middle school training. And you know they're getting up there in forty five seconds uh, wow. and lapping that hill and just run after run after run. And after an hour of doing that, they are completely spent. So looking at the bottom of the hill elsewhere, at your lift fleet. Purple is now your oldest lift. Well, it, it, it has always been your oldest lift. It, it's 50 years old this year. Any long-term thinking around what to do with purple? Well, like you mentioned, purple and orange are both um, older lifts. And uh, I believe that you know both of them in the next, as you've said, 10 years will be replaced, upgraded, uh, may, maybe changed a little bit. But you know, purple... Um, it's a free lift. Nubs Knob has one of the, was one of the first ski areas in the Midwest to go with a free beginner area. Um, but the lift towers are low. Uh, the, the lift incline is not great. That's a, like a five to 6% grade on that slope. Um, we've done some significant upgrades to it with a new tension terminal. Um, it, it's in fine shape. And when we did take down the blue, we did get some extra parts for the purple. Um, so I went, and, you know, we do a fabulous, the guys do an awesome job maintaining that lift. So that's not, you know, something that's going to happen in the next year. But, um, yeah, it's it's certainly something we're thinking about. Do you think that when you do get to that point, is a double still the right lift for purple? That is something that we're going to really have to think hard about. But I think so. Um, there's something special about riding a double chairlift. Um, and especially with the beginners, you usually see mom or dad riding with, um, their four or five, six year old who's learning how to ski. And there's, I don't know how to say it other than when you're next to your four year old son on a double fixed grip lift. Um, there's something kind of special about that. And I, I, I wouldn't want to mess that up. You mentioned something interesting earlier when you were talking about the green upgrade that will have safety bars. And it's funny because I grew up skiing in Michigan and there were no safety bars in the lifts except for the Boyne Mountain six pack at the time. And I never really thought about it until I moved out east and they're required everywhere. Have you found over time as skiers do go and ski in these other regions, is this something they're starting to ask about more is having those bars on the lifts or, or is it just something that's part of the culture there in Michigan and that no one really talks about or thinks about? I would say the latter. There's not a whole lot of discussion about it. Um, you know, I I like to ski around the state when I can. And, you know, what I typically notice is that the lifts that do have the safety bars or the restraint bars, a lot of times folks aren't pulling them down. Um, you know, our lifts, you're on them for such a short period of time that uh, 
you, you know, a lot of times I think that just they don't get utilized. Um, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I just think that that's what actually happens on the slopes. Uh, the other thing that, you know, uh, that we've always thought about here is there is a concern with the restraint bars that as a young person goes to reach up for it, that that's typically the point when they um, are scooting to the end of the chair and putting themselves in a unsafe position. So, um, you know, I, and I think that they've done some studies on this too, and it, it's not clear if that's, uh, you know, an, an issue that's actually causing more problems or, or resolving more problems. Um, but it is clear that regardless of um, what we think, you, you absolutely have to have restraint bars on new lift installations. So going, going across the hill to the orange triple, again, that's your longest lift, 2,273 feet, dates to 1979. What are your long-term thoughts around orange? Do you think we could see a quad over there at some point? Yeah, I, I, I think that when it comes time to replace that, and that would probably be the next lift uh, to be upgraded, um, a quad probably makes sense right there. So, so looking all around the hill here, long-term, what is your wish list, Ben, for upgrades? Or additions? Oh, that's a great question. You know, the first thing here is going to be the thing that it's always been, which is what can we do to make the your day at Nub's Nub better as a skier? And that always is going to start with a conversation on snow. And we have, I think, uh, nearly 320 snow guns right now. And we're going to continue to beef up that infrastructure. Um, and, you know, it's fun to talk about chairlifts. It's fun to talk about uh, added terrain and all of this stuff, but none of it matters, Stuart, unless you have the snow. And that's one thing that we have absolutely uh, crushed here throughout uh, the last few decades and really uh, for many years is just building snow guns. And we're going to continue to do that because um, our number one goal here is to get our skiers on high quality snow as soon as possible with as much terrain as possible. So when we talk about upgrades and we talk about what's next um, at Nubs Knob, it's going to always start with a discussion on snow. And then when it gets for, to making the snow, the next discussion is how do we get uh, to, you know, put out that world famous Nubs Knob corduroy and uh, making sure that we've got the best fleet of groomers and the best operators um, that we can possibly have. So that's really where we're going to start those conversations. Um, but then when I think about, you know, moving uh, the needle forward here at Nubs Knob in terms of other things we'd like to see, uh, me personally, I'd, I'd love to have a super modern um, lift fleet, not high speed, but I'd like to continue to work um, aggressively toward replacing uh, these riblet lifts with, um, you know, fixed grip lifts, probably from a, a great company like Skytrack. And I'd like to leave the next person in a, in a spot where um, they're working with a company that hopefully is still in business at that time. Uh, so that, you know, that that's kind of, uh, that's how I'm thinking about it. Are you pretty happy with the imprint of the lift fleet overall? Is there anywhere where you don't have a lift that you would like to see redundancy or build one? When I think about that question, my brain goes right to surface lifts. I think surface lifts are awesome, especially in the Midwest. And if you want to talk about high-speed technology, you know, a Palma lift that moves at 600 feet per minute, um, rope toes can move even faster. Um, and, you know, a high-speed lift moves at 800 feet per minute, where a fixed grip chair is at 400 feet per minute. So 
Yeah, I don't have any, we don't have any like specific plans, but when I, when I think about that, I, I think about surface lifts and, uh, you know, places like the terrain park is, would be, it'd be fun to put another surface lift in there to let, uh, the folks in the park make faster laps. Um, it, it'd be cool to have some redundancy over on JB arena with that rope toe and do another, uh, Palma lift over there. Um, I could even see some areas of the glades eventually having a rope or a Palma, um, but I, I think the future um, here, if there was going to be a new installation, um, I would really look hard at surface lifts. How about a lift from the bottom of Pintail Peak up to the top of Nubs Knob South? No. <laughs> <laughs> Have to make the ski, huh? It, you know, um, yeah, I've, I've looked at that and uh, I, I could see some point in doing that, but the, the way that it, the skier flow works right now, um, having Pintail Peak, you've got about a three-quarter mile um, green run to get back there. Uh, it's a great place for people to learn how to ski on that long run. And when you get back to Pintail Peak, it does feel almost like you're at a separate ski area. It's got a lodge on the top of Pintail Um beautiful lodge, large glass windows that look out at Little Travers Bay, which is just this phenomenal view. Um, and it does feel like a kind of a little isolated, quiet place. And I, I kind of like the fact that it's not um, super connected to the rest of the ski area, that you got to work a little bit to get back there. And I think it gives it its own kind of special vibe that you'd totally get if you were back there. It is. It's really nice. You go back there and it's quiet. It almost feels like you went to a different ski area. Absolutely. Yes. So you really have a knack for finding these little pockets of terrain and doing quiet expansions, right? Pintail Peak, I remember when that opened, it was a big deal. It's a whole new pod. Uh, there was a new lift back there. There's two lifts back there now, a whole bunch of trails, about a dozen trails back there. But the Arena Glades was a really creative way to make the ski area bigger on on just a little piece of terrain that was always sitting there over the purple lift. And, and Tower Glades was kind of the same thing, which, which I think that would be another great place. Uh, for a rope tow, I'm sure you've thought the same, but uh, just talk about that process of, of how you and the team think about the mountain you have and maximizing its capability. How, how do you, do you just look at where the skiers are skiing anyway and what they're poaching or, or is, or is there a very deliberate process behind this? That's basically it. We look at where our um, delinquent ski patrollers are skiing out of bounds <laughs> and, and, and create runs there. You know, oftentimes if you, we, and I, I say that jokingly, of course, but we've got, um, you know, this wonderful uh, patrol, uh, ski patrollers here uh, who absolutely love the sport. We've got wonderful ski instructors here who spend their winter lives at Nubs Knob and, um, you know, these are folks that are on skis all the time and they'll stop in the office and say, Hey, come ski with me. Uh, and they, they did that. They've done that with me. They've done that with JB, um, before. And, uh, you know, we, we watch where the skiers go and we look at, is there additional terrain we can go get somewhere? Um, and glades are a great one, you know, it's, uh, just taking out some trees and, um, removing the brush and, and boom, you've got a, a ski run. Um, and you know, in the, People oftentimes joke about powder days here and how it doesn't happen, but you'd be surprised. There's always a handful of really, really good days. And um, if you get one of those days and you're in northern Michigan, this is the place to be. We've got a ton of glades and a whole lot of pockets where you can find some fresh snow. 
they really are some nice glades. They ski well, and they just kind of popped up on the trail map year after year. You have tower glades and arena glades and pintail glade and outback jack glades. What's next, Ben? What do you have your eyes on for future glade development? Well, I think, yeah, there's a couple more spots, but something that I'd point out to you that um, I, I don't know that even our skiers have totally discovered yet, but we put in five miles of snowshoe trail um, mm. two years ago that loops around the exterior of our entire property. Um, and that snowshoe trail, you can stay on the snowshoe trail and just snowshoe it. You could have a pair of, um, a, you know, an AT set up with skins or a pair of, uh, skis with fish scales and just ski that trail itself. Or you can pop out of that snowshoe trail and access some awesome glades like the pintail glades, uh, like the arena glades, off of that trail and, and put together this kind of magical backwoods, um, ski experience in the Midwest. Uh, yeah, we don't have the vertical, so we get creative with what we've got and doing things like, um, backcountry skiing, uh, snowshoeing, cross country skiing, in addition to doing things like race league, all of these things make that Midwest ski experience just a little bit more rich. So I know that in, precisely answer your question about where are there going to be more glades, but we're going to keep looking, um, for glades and yeah, there, there's some more spots that we can develop. That's there, there absolutely is. But, um, I also just want to make the point of, um, getting creative on skis here is always a fun thing to do. What's the best entrance point for skiers that want to check out that snowmob- snowshoe trail? So you got to go to tower three of the purple chairlift, look to your left and there's a sign there. And, um, it's, it's a wonderful trail that just takes you up and down some beautiful rolling terrain. Um, you immediately get to the top of uh, JB Arena where you've got this view of the entire ski area and, again, of the bay. Uh, and it's a really cool thing to do. It's something that I've started to do myself is, uh, you know, you put on a pair of um, skis with some skins and you, you get a little workout in. You go ski those glades for a little bit. You can continue on the trail if you want to. Um, but that's really a fun way to, uh, spend some time here at the ski area. So both arena glades and tower glades sit lookers left on long ridges and skiers left. There's quite a bit of, of terrain that looks as though it could be developed on those ridges. Is there a reason you kept it concentrated? Is it, is it just a matter of making sure that you have an area you can maintain or was there another reason? Does it get too low angle? For example, as you go skiers left off arena and tower. Yeah, it's more about having access to the, the that glade area. Um, in addition to yes, being able to maintain that space is important too. But you know, as you and I are talking, we're actually cutting in another um, half mile of cross country Nordic Trail um, on that upper red um, loop, uh, which is going to really um, increase our red loop by about twenty five percent. That's the best cross country skiing we have. So yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like you say, a matter of um, practicality there and access to the glades for where we put that snowshoe trail. Are you able to open the glades every year, Ben? You, you are in that nice northern Michigan snow belt, but are you able to, has there been a year when you haven't been able to open them? There has never been a season where the glades have remained closed. Um, however, uh, we're not you know, actively making snow in there, but because we have such an incredible snowmaking fleet here, the glades often benefit from blowover snow from our snowmaking system. Um, but I would say on average, if you were to prod around in those glades, 
um, you know, you're usually going to find about a foot of base in there. So, uh, yeah, they're not going to open as soon as the snowmaking runs and, um, they're going to be first to go. Um, they, they might, you know, only last until, uh, you know, early mid March, but we've, we've skied them until April sometimes. So just really depends on the season. So those are little pockets you could potentially add here and there. Thinking bigger, when you opened Pintail Peak, it was actually a land swap with the state of Michigan to acquire that property. Is there any land around Nubs Knob current ski area that would that could potentially be accessed for a bigger expansion, either land you own or land you could potentially theoretically acquire? You know, Nubs is we've maximized our footprint. Um, as best we can. Having said that, yeah, there's a, there's probably one more pocket um, that we could develop. It wouldn't be as big as Pintail Peak, but there there is another pocket, an area that we would call uh, Nubs Knob North. That is, um, if you, as you're looking at the ski area, uh, the front side to the left, to the left of Big Time, between there and JB Arena, there is a pocket of terrain that we have there that that would be a possibility. Um, but before we look at any expansions here, you know, we got to really um, take a long, hard look at what we currently have. And we don't want to do a whole lot with expansion until uh, our, our house is in order with the, the train we do have. Respecting that, tell us what the potential is for that little bit of terrain you just described. What's the vertical? What's the acreage? What kind of terrain is it? Um, you know, so that's actually where our, our snowshoe trail starts. Um, it goes through that terrain, um, you know, looking at it, I think that there's maybe three runs there and a couple more glades. There's a, a wonderful, um, green run in there, uh, that would be almost three quarters of a mile long. And then there's probably, um, there, there's, there's a potential, uh, black run and a blue run, um, in there too. So there's not a whole lot more terrain. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, there probably is something over there that um, I hope eventually we can get to. Do you own that land? We do. Nice. All right. Let's talk about your parks. Nubs Knob has a really, really incredible parks crew and parks culture. Just talk about how important that is to Nubs and and how you keep up with it. Because this is, this is an area that, to quote the cool kids, uh, progresses very rapidly. So t- talk about that part of Nubs Knob and how you, how you keep up with the whole thing. Yeah, parks absolutely progress rapidly. Um, you know, we we try to um, employ folks that love to ride in the park, um, and then our our groomers, our lead groomer he, uh, Scott Koontz, he's been here for, uh, gosh, I think over thirty years. And the guy can you can just draw something on a scratch piece of paper, and he can make it in the cat. Um, wow. and, and so it's you know it's that kind of relationship you got to have. First, you got to have the snow. So we've we've stacked that area with tons of snow guns, um, and then you got to have the operator um, who who can build whatever. But then you got to have the crew of people that are passionate um, about what's going on in the sport right now, and and care about keeping that a quality product. One of the coolest things we've done with our park um, in the past few years is brought back the uh, half pipe. You, you probably know that where JB Arena is now, we used to have a 22 foot walled super pipe. Um, but what we were seeing with that was uh, obviously massive cost in, uh, in snowmaking to get that thing open. And generally speaking, it just was pretty underutilized. Um, but 
we have had, but at that time we actually had three pipes. We had that one, we had a 12 foot wall pipe and we had a six to eight foot wall pipe. And, um, the most popular pipe by far has been that 12 foot wall pipe. Um, it had been gone for well over 10 years and we, we brought it back, I believe four years ago. And, um, that was, that was a really cool thing to kind of bring the pipe back and, to do that, we really need to re- resurrect our pipe cutting machine called the Pipe Magician and find parts from all over the place. Our area manager, Marty Moore, was you know, calling over to uh, making contacts in Europe and all over the place to get uh, the parts we needed to get this thing rolling. Um, so we, we do plan on building that pipe every year we can, um, which is kind of a, a very unique thing that we do here. But again, you need to have about 18 feet of snow to, in order to cut a 12 foot pipe. And some years we just don't have like the last two years, we just haven't had the cold early on um, to get that amount of snow in the park. And if we can't build this pipe by Christmas time, uh, it's kind of something we've decided it doesn't make sense to close down the park for you know two, three weeks in the middle of January in order to make the snow. And at that point, you, you really just need to ride the park you got. Can you, is it possible to make an earthwork, a sort of permanent mound of dirt and grass that is the, that is the pipe so you don't have to blow so much? Yep, that is possible. Um, and I know people who have done that. Uh, however, what I think you typically find in that situation, Stuart, is that you don't get the shape that you really want because, mm. um, you know, in order for a pipe to be fun, you need to come up to a straight vert wall at the very top of that pipe. Um, so you can actually air out and come back in. And, you know, if you're doing it with dirt, you just can't get dirt to stand like that. Right. Right. So the best way to do it is to, um, make the entire, the entire dang thing right out of snow. <laughs> All right. Another huge part of Nubs Knob culture is night skiing. Talk about the importance of night skiing to Nubs Knob. Well, you know, again, a Midwest skier, you know, what do we do for fun? Um, on, you know, under 500 feet of vert, we go ski race and we've got a wonderful, um, beer league here called the Bonhoeff, uh, beer league. That's our local ski shop. And we have well over 400 skiers in that league. The league is based on, um, personal improvement. So you can have a team of skiers that are the worst skiers on the Hill and you can actually win the entire league because you, you all have improved so much. So it truly is, you know, a super fun thing. Um, and you know, the majority of local folks that love to ski participate in that league. It's kind of the heartbeat of nubs knob in the winter. Um, but you know, night skiing, yeah, it's, it's a magical thing. And, um, you know, whether or not you're a league skier, if you're uh, a family that wants to enjoy, you know, Ramblewood, which is one of the longest beginner runs we have, um, and just go through the woods and watch the snow fall under the lights, uh, it, it's it's a really cool thing, and we've been working on changing out some of the lights. We're going to a lot of LED lights. We're increasing the slope lighting uh, and, and trying to improve that night skiing experience. Have you considered lighting t- Pintail Peak? We do have a few lights back there that we utilize for snowmaking. But again, um, the night skiing crowd here, and you, you, probably, you know this area, Petoskey, Harbor Springs, it's just not that population dense. So... Um, you know, there's, there's never even a one minute lift line, um, for the green lift and the orange lift and the purple and the red. So we just, we, frankly, we just don't have a need for the extra terrain. Um, and in terms of operations, you know, we really want to get back to pintail, get that thing groomed up for the next day. Um, 
so it, operationally, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to add more um, night skiing at this point. So back to snowmaking for a moment. Tell us, Ben, about the Nubs Knob snowmaking gun. Tell us the history behind that and to what extent you use them today. Well, uh, th- that's a gun that was developed here at Nubs Knob, and primarily it was developed by Jim Dilworth, who was um, the the first general manager here, hired by the Fisher family. Um, and he was a uh, he was an engineer, and he had perfected. Um, this fan gun that he dubbed the Nub- Nubs gun. And I believe it was in 1985, he actually got a patent for the gun. Um, and w- yeah, we buy some parts from uh, SMI to build these guns, but they are distinctly our guns. We weld them here. We build the, the rings for them, um, uh, the, you know, the nucleation technology. It's all of it is extraordinarily simple, really, really simple tech. Um, mm-hmm if you even want to use the word tech at all with these guns, cause you can fix everything with a pipe wrench. Um, but it's the gun that we continue to use today and we use it to great effect. We've tested other high tech guns alongside this gun and these things just put out the snow for us. And, uh, it's one of our, um, competitive advantages. You know, I, I toured the SMI factory earlier this year and a lot of their focus nowadays is on, automation and making it easier to do more snowmaking with fewer people. It sounds like you have a really good gun that can spit out a lot of snow, but over time, how are you approaching this notion of automation and, and streamlining the labor part of this a little bit? Well, we're not, we're, we're going to stick with the low tech solution and I'll tell you why. Um, there is absolutely no tech out there that is ever going to beat, um, an educated, caring snowmaker who's going gun to gun, checking what's going on with the snow. Uh, simple example. If you've got, um, you know, and I, you know, I used to make snow on the midnight shift, which, you know, you both love and hate as a snowmaker, <laughs> but you can have a, um, a, a, a super cold night. Things are going great. And you've got one gun that's got um, a clog in a nozzle or um, uh, the nucleator isn't adjusted quite right or the nuke has frozen up entirely. And while things look good and while the automation might say everything's cool, this one gun in the line is producing water instead of snow. And that can screw things up bad. You, You just can't beat a guy who knows what he's doing or a gal who knows what she's doing going gun to gun, checking the snow, feeling on your face, every single snow gun. If it's, if the nucleation's happening, if the magic's there, or if things are getting sloppy or things might be going great, like I was saying on most of the guns, but you got one or two that are acting up for a variety of reasons. And, um, when people ski here, that what they're feeling underneath their skis is a lot of care and a lot of love from the snow crew. So keeping it old school with the snow guns, sounds like you're keeping it old school, I think, with the with the lift tickets as well. I think you're still using the metal wicket tickets, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm a big fan of these. We're seeing a lot of conversions to RFID. What are your thoughts long-term around lift tickets? Well, right now, the uh, low-tech solution, the wicket ticket, is working great for us. Um, you know, when it comes to technology, I, you know, the way we approach it is how is this making our life better? And it seems to me 
that a lot of people don't actually ask themselves that question. And they just say, oh, it's the newest, coolest thing. It's the latest, greatest. Look at all of this data we can get on our skiers. But as a person skiing the slope, especially in the Midwest, where you're coming down the ski run pretty quickly and jumping on that lift, you know, rapidly. And, um, you know, you've got a, a you know, a, in my case of skiing with my two sons who are short, <laughs> um, and, and you're constantly running into this RFID gate. Um, and a lot of times with the short guys, the, uh, RFID tech isn't, you know, able to read the pass where they're at and, you know, trying to lift them up so that they, you know, the, all of a sudden the gate can read the ticket and they're there. It's opening. Um, I don't know that that's making life any better for anybody in the Midwest. Um, and, and people are going to argue with me on that. And I, I don't mean any disrespect, but, um, to me as a skier, you know, I like to get in the flow, uh, on the ski hill. And I just like to go right back to the chairlift without having to hopefully see if this thing scans and opens up a gate and lets me on the lift or not. I mean, the theme I'm seeing here, Ben, is your, your focus is on the hill and it's on the snow, the skiers are skiing and the quality of that snow. And it's not on spending a lot of money just to keep up with the scary across the street, right? Or anyone else. It's, 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 it sounds like, it seems like a deliberate decision that Nubs Knob is making that we're going to be really careful to preserve what we have and not ruin it by getting ourselves in, in trouble financially or, or any other way. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, we've got a really special thing going on here. If, if you come here and ski, um, you'll, you'll see that. And I think that, you know, we always are thinking about technology as making our lives better. Well, sometimes it can make our lives worse. And there are times when it's really nice to turn off the cell phone and just take some ski runs with your friends uh, and your family and enjoy the experience that you got to enjoy when you were a kid, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, I think about that a lot and how I hope that the magic that is this place uh, continues on. And like I was saying earlier, it's, you just don't want to ruin that. It is a really interesting dynamic. And and the reason I was talking about the Highlands is the reality is it is right across the street from Nubs Knob and Boyne Resorts is a very well capitalized company that is investing literally hundreds of millions of dollars into its resorts. And they're a competitor and, and, and you, the, all of your skiers are going to be aware of the things you're doing. I had Mike Chumbler, general manager of the Highlands on this podcast earlier this year. He said that you have a good relationship, good working relationship. Just talk a little bit about the, the cooperative and the competitive dynamic between Nubs Knob and the Highlands. Yeah. Mike's a great guy. Um, the Highlands is a first class operation. Um, if you like to ski, in the lower peninsula of Michigan, I don't think you can do any better than coming up to the Petoskey Harbor Springs area and um, ski in both places. It, just in terms of how the hills are laid out and um, the way the place functions, it's really a uh, ski mecca for um, Michigan's lower peninsula. Um, but yeah, in terms of our working relationship, it's great. You know, we really are very different. You know, one of the quotes I love is you got to sail your own boat. And the boat that is Nubs Knob is a very different boat compared to our friends across the street at the Highlands. And, you know, they've got, uh, 
you know, different resources. They're part of a, you know, a much larger network of ski areas. Um, but end of the day, we've got a great working relationship and yeah, we do compete against each other. Um, but there's things we can offer that they can't, and there's things that they offer like the, you know, lodging and uh, all of that, that we can't offer. So, um, I think that we've got a great relationship and I think both ski areas are better, uh, to have the other one across the street. All right, Ben, let's wrap up here today with a conversation on passes in June. You finally joined the Indy pass. I think you've had an open invitation for that since the pass dropped back in 2019. A lot of my Michigan friends are really, really stoked on this. What finally pushed you to sign with Indy? Well, we, we like the pass right off the bat when we heard about it. Um, Doug fish is a great guy. He came here on a day and, March, actually a few days before we had to shut down for with the pandemic stuff. Um, I think that's 2019, right? And he, oh yeah. Okay. Well he, and he was here and it was, uh, it was even a, a, a rain day, which, you know, we get a oh, couple, wow. couple of those and he put his stuff on and he went skiing and he said a great day. And I was like, All <laughs> right, any dude who can go out and just ski in the rain and come back with a smile on his face and say, he had a blast. Uh, let's listen to what this guy has to say. And, um, so, you know, Doug and I hit it off right away. The really cool thing about Indy, in my opinion, is um, it's addressing a problem that the ski industry has right now. And that problem is how do you get uh, a beginner person to develop into a dedicated skier? You know, you've got past products out there like, uh, of course, the Epic Pass and some of the other uh, large ones that are a great deal for established skiers, people that are already committed to the sport. But if you're just a guy like uh, who wants to show up at the ticket window on the weekend um, or some other time, it's it's tough. You know, it's it's expensive. And the Indy Passage has an answer for that person and that family. And that's the family I grew up in. So I was always passionate about the product as soon as I heard about it. But in terms of, you know, why did it take us so long to join? Well, we're going to be slow on this kind of stuff because we got a great thing. And our first commitment at Nubs Knob is to our season pass holders. Um, the folks that really drive this place forward are our season pass holders that sustain us. And I wanted to make sure that we weren't detracting from that season pass holder experience. Um, and that's why when we did join Indy, I'm sure you'll note that we've got a ton of blackout dates. Uh, one, you know, the parking lot is typically full on Saturday, so we can't really handle any more guests. And then two on Sundays, that's the day when our local folks um, come out and just ski with their families. And I was afraid in year one of joining the Indy that we might be overwhelming that um, that group of people, our season pass holders, who I feel and uh, Elise, the, the Fisher family, we feel um, that that's our first obligation. So you know, that's, that's why we joined Indy, um, a bit late. And that's also why we've decided on, uh, the blackouts that we have. Yeah. Something that may make your skiers, your season pass holders feel better, Ben. I just today published a conversation with Brundage, Idaho general manager, Ken Ryder and Brundage has been a top 10 resort by redemptions on the Indy pass every single year. In fact, it was the first resort to ever join Indy pass. And what he told me on that podcast is even though they're a top 10 IndyPass resort, 
their total Indy Pass visitation is only 2.7% of their skiers, which is a really small number. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. But that's going to grow, I think. You know, I, I'm, I, you know, you look at how many um, passes uh, Doug's selling for Indy, and I think that's going to continue to grow. Um, what I'm really hoping for us personally is that it does push the midweek business a little bit here. Um, and that that's good for everybody. Like that's good for our season pass holders too, because if the uh, Indy does drive midweek business, it lets us run more lifts, um, you know, and it lets us do some cooler stuff here because we all of a sudden we've got the business to warrant it. So another benefit that your season pass holders, I think, will really like is they can now get an Indy pass for a substantial discount, about 30% off of the list price. And if you're in the lower peninsula of Michigan, I mean, Indy is a terrific product. You get two days each at Crystal, Cabra Fay, Shannon Creek, Treetop, Swiss Valley, go up to the UP and you get two days at Marquette Mountain and Pine Mountain, Snow River and Big Powderhorn. What's the buzz been with your season pass holders since you signed on to Indy Pass? Are they excited to be able to get these extra days at all these other ski resorts around the state? Yes, we have heard some of that. And, you know, I think that it's going to take a season or two for our season pass holders to realize um, and take advantage of how cool that benefit is. Um, but one thing that's unique about this place, and we, we know this from reciprocal agreements that we've had in the past, is our pass holders tend to ski at nubs and they, they tend to not travel around much. Um, and when we've had reciprocal agreements that pass holders from other ski areas tend to come here and the nubs folks tend to not travel around as much. But um, I think now having that opportunity uh, at all of the places that you've mentioned that, yeah, I think they will. And I think they should. It's it. You know, there's all of these independent ski areas in Michigan that are uh, just wonderful places. The top ski resort by Redemptions on the Indy Pass has for a couple of years running now been J Peak, Vermont. And this is the best or at least one of the best ski areas in New England. And Steve Wright, the general manager there, has been pretty vocal about his motivation for staying on Indy because certainly Jay could go on to any pass it wanted. But a lot of what he likes about it is that it supports the smaller ski areas in New England, like Saskatoon 6 or Pat's Peak or Magic Mountain in southern Vermont. And for those who are not familiar with Michigan skiing, statistically, Nubs Knob may not sound big compared to what you're used to in New England or out west. But I'm telling you, in Michigan, Nubs Knob is a really big deal. And you were pretty clear that part of your motivation for joining Indy, Ben, was a little bit to be the J Peak of Vermont. In other words, if folks see nubs on that Indy Pass, they're going to buy it, but then they say, oh, hey, I have two days at Treetops. I have two days at Swiss Valley. I have two days at these little spots I can check out that maybe I wouldn't have gone to before. And of course, every time a skier cashes in an Indy Pass, the ski area gets a payment for that. So talk about that and, and that dynamic and why that was important to you. Yeah, I did um, read a quote from Steve uh, Wright that, that said something exactly like that. And I did think about that, too. Um, you know, you've heard it said before, a rising tide floats all boats. And I, I do hope that's what happens with Nubs joining Indy. I hope that it does help out um, not just Nubs on our midweek business, but I hope it helps out all of these um, independent ski areas in Michigan. We have got a great relationship with all of the ski areas that you've named there, all of them that are on the Indy Pass. Um, when the pandemic first hit, 
uh, we work together, um, myself and the general managers from all of these ski areas. We're on a weekly Zoom call. We got to know each other. We became friends. Um, we we want to help each other, and that's important to me. So let's talk about your season pass at Nubs Knob. You mentioned today before we actually started this call that this was the last day of your deadline, so you have a lot going on today. Uh, that pass is around $700. But you also have a bargain pass. This is a really neat product that is substantially discounted. Tell us about the bargain pass, Ben, and why you introduced that product. So the bargain pass, we affectionately call the locals pass, and it gets you two full days at the ski area. Um, and the only blackout on it is you can't use it on Saturdays during the heart of the season, but you can mm -hmm. use it Saturday night. So, um, you know, for most people that live within, I'm going to say an hour and a half, two hour drive of the ski hill, um, you know, two days, two full days of skiing is great. Most, most folks will use it for doing a race league, um, in the evening, one of the weeknights, and then they come and ski with the family on Sundays. Um, and yeah, skiing's expensive, but there are ways that you can make it, um, somewhat more affordable and it's important to myself. It's important to the crew here. It's important to our ownership to have a way that folks can come out here and enjoy the place for the entire winter uh, without spending an arm and a leg. And that, that bargain pass is really the key uh, to doing that. Yeah. That started at just $360 for 2022 to 23. And that sale will have ended by the time folks listen to this. And I believe it's going to $400, but really creative product there. Uh, last question for you here today, Ben, Nubs Knob has finally cracked the $100 mark for one-day lift tickets on peak days, running as high as $102 for this coming season. I don't actually know if this is the first year you've crossed that mark, but just talk about crossing that psychological barrier and, and what the challenges were around that for you and for the owners and for the skiers. Yep. This is the first year that we've crossed that mark. And you know, I had to talk about it and process it for quite a while with, uh, with Elise, our owner here, um, because it is a psychological mark and, you know, we do want to be an affordable place for people to ski, but, you know, we typically on our Saturday slash holiday ticket rate, we typically go up, um, between two and $5 a season. It just depends on what's going on. And there's been a lot going on with inflation, obviously. So this year we're going up $4 on that ticket. And we said, we really need to just treat that as a psychological thing, uh, you know, and, and put that in the background to say, yeah, we're just going to do what we've always done. And unfortunately this year that brings us over the hundred dollar mark. I still think you get a lot of value for that. Um, but you know, coming out of the pandemic too, we also need to recognize like there, there's a lot of demand, um, for skiing. And if you want to find a deal on skiing at nubs, you, you can, but it's weeknights, it's weekdays, um, it's the bargain pass. But if you want to come here when um, it's more difficult to find a place to park, like on a Saturday or holiday, then we need to charge for that. And so that, you know, that's kind of the thinking on it. And, um, you know, if you didn't go above 100 this year, then, you know, when are you going to do it? And, you know, the, the truth is everything we're buying at the ski area has gone up about 20% this year. Uh, whether you're talking about labor or food or, um, you know, all of these things ha have gone up a lot. Um, and so, you know, we're, we are not passing on a 20% increase 
to our customers. That's not happening. But, you know, you're going to see 5% um, or more in a few different places so that we can, um, you know, continue to be here and do do the thing we do and continue to make improvements like chairlift replacement, uh, adding snow guns, replacing groomers so that we can put out the product that we need to do. All right, Ben. Well, I've already taken a half hour more than I promised. I really appreciate it, especially on a busy day like today. I hope you have a nice early opening this year for Nubs Knob, and hopefully I can stop in and make a couple turns with you. Hey, thanks, Stuart. Huge fan of the storm. Thanks for everything you're doing for skiing. And uh, all of us at Nubs are gearing up, and we can't wait to uh, get you back on the slopes. That's Ben Dornboss. General Manager of Nubs Knob, Michigan. Man, that was a lot of fun. Awesome job, Ben. You totally crushed it. Nub Skiers, that guy is going to take very good care of your ship. I would be feeling really good about your hill and about your manager and about the future of that joint after listening to him lay that all out. All right, Team Michigan, I have got a treat for you. I said in the intro that I had another Michigan pod booked for next week but I didn't say who. So as a reward for making it all the way to the end, get this scheduled to join me on the podcast next week is Mount Bohemia president, Lonnie Gleiberman. Huge. I cannot tell you how pumped I am for this one. There is nothing, nothing in this country like Mount Bohemia, no grooming, no snowmaking, No ski school, just some of the rawest, gnarliest terrain in the country. No, not just in the Midwest, in the entire freaking country. I cannot wait to drop that one in your inbox. I already have an episode with Sun Valley General Manager Pete Sontag recorded. You will be receiving that one within the next week. Then I will be delivering conversations with the managers of Bromley, Monarch, Sundance, Boyne Resorts, Vail Mountain, and many more. Looks as though we have to reschedule Winter Park, unfortunately, and I am very sorry about that, but we will make that happen eventually. To make sure you get those episodes as soon as they are live, I will ask you to please sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.